questions, and we'll show up if, if there's time. Okay, thanks. Good evening. It is exciting to be here and uh, on this special occasion to talk about uh, a very special topic, um, discussing life, celebrating life post Roe versus Wade. after missed opportunity, one can give that we are never hopeless without God, for through Him all things are possible, and that He reigns as the supreme judge over all things, including uh, the Supreme Court. Here is a picture of me, uh, if you haven't, if you don't recognize that handsome gentleman, uh, this is taken in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building on December 1, 2021, and uh, this was right before the oral argument of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Uh, my wife Lori and I were there to participate in a pro-life rally. Uh, that was taking place right before the oral argument. And um, I wish y'all could have been there. It was a wild, just surreal scene. Uh, I've never really experienced anything quite like it. Uh, I had chill bumps and had nothing to do with the cold weather. The enthusiasm was palpable. Uh, all the folks on the, on the pro-life side were just so excited. You just had this sense that something big, uh, something life-changing, life-saving uh, was going to happen. Uh, of course, uh, we didn't know what the Supreme Court was going to do. This was even before the oral argument where we would receive hints about what they would do. Uh, but on this day, we had hope. I was also struck by the number of young people who were at this rally. Um, it's really an overwhelming number. Like this guy here, wearing the Life sweatshirt, holding up the sign, I am the post-Row generation. Uh, this dude was prophetic. Um, to the surprise of really many legal scholars, Many Supreme Court observers, the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs, expressly overruled Roe versus Wade. And this young man is indeed living as part of the post-Roe generation. Unbelievably, we are all now living in a post-Roe world. Uh, it's really hard to uh, grasp that. Um, 
with this all being new, a lot of us are really not sure what to make of it, wondering what it means, what comes next. A lot of folks are excited, very happy, while a lot of other folks are, are angry, uh, upset. How should we react? How should we respond? In the aftermath of Dobbs overruling Roe versus Wade, it really leaves a lot of questions. Uh, virtually all the interrogative words. Why, where, what, how, when, whom. In this time that we have together, I'm going to try to address uh, those questions. And then uh, I'm going to call up a very uh, special guest, Peter Winterburn, who will, will share with us really the perspective of uh, crisis uh, pregnancy medical clinic, post-row, what that looks like. And then if, if we have time, uh, hopefully we do, we can take some questions. But the first fundamental question uh, for us to address is why? Why do we, or, or should we, value unborn life? If we say that we are pro-life, and a lot of us do, it's good for us to know why. Why is that? Do we have a biblical basis for this conviction? Growing up, while a lot of my friends had posters uh, in their rooms of uh, various things like characters from Star Wars, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, Dallas Cowboys, I even knew a, one friend who was able to uh, convince his parents to have a poster of actress Farrah Fawcett in his room, I had none of those. Uh, instead, I had a poster of this guy. Uh, President Ronald Reagan. He was my hero, very influential in developing my political ideology, contributing to why I'm largely conservative in my, my thinking. So I really have to, to ask myself, um, with this question, am I pro-life because Reagan was pro-life? Is pro-life really just another conservative talking point like uh, limited government or lower taxes? Just like everything else, all our views on this preeminent issue of life has to be tested by Scripture. What does God have to say about it? Genesis 127 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So as, as Richie Sessions would say, what's the so what about that? Well, well this, one, this verse tells us that life is sacred. It is valuable. Being made in the very image of God, that's, that's what attaches value to it. A corollary of this principle is found in one of the Ten Commandments uh, set out in Exodus 20, 13, and that is, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. So life is sacred, and the intentional killing of innocent life is wrong. But this really does leave a lingering question for us, and that is, how do we determine life? Scripture speaks to this uh, matter as well. Psalm, whoops, I pushed the wrong button. Psalm. 139.13 states, 
For you formed my inward parts, and the you refers to God. For you, God, knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is a clear, uh, unmistakable reference to the existence of human life inside the mother's womb. Also, uh, both it's interesting, both Jesus and John were referred to as persons while being in their respective mother's wombs. In both the Hebrew and Greek in Scripture, in referring to life and defining life, it includes life inside the womb. And science supports this biblical truth. Uh, today, we actually know far more about prenatal care, what happens inside the womb, than we did in 1973 when Roe versus Wade was decided. Um, and what it tells us through ultrasounds and other medical advancements, it really confirms what Scripture has told us all along, that life does exist in the womb. Now, it's important to know, it's important to remember that the abortion issue, the abortion decision, is far more complicated because of emotional, relational, contextual variables, some difficult, very hard circumstances at times. But at bottom, we know from Scripture that God values unborn life, and we should as well. The next question uh, is, what? What happened in the Dobbs case? Uh, I've received a lot of questions about that. There's a lot of confusion. Exactly what did the court hold in this case? Um, I'm familiar with Dobbs because the state of Mississippi asked our legal group to um, prepare an amicus brief in support of the Mississippi law. Uh, amicus briefs are supplemental briefs. They're not written by the parties directly involved but there are parties who are interested in what's going on in that particular lawsuit. And amicus briefs can be very important at the Supreme Court level, predominantly because the justices read them. They take them into account, um, and they use them often in their opinions. Uh, now, candidly, when I was uh, first asked to participate by the Mississippi AG's office, I was uh, reluctant. Uh, we were down a lawyer. Didn't know if I could find the time. But if you're talking about the case of the century, uh, you, you find the time. And, and, I, and I did. So we were really thrilled to be part of it. Uh, in the Dobbs case, it was a challenge brought by the owner of this building. It's Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, this is the last remaining abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi. And they challenged a law that was passed by the state of Mississippi that banned abortions at the gestational age of 15 weeks. That's 15 weeks. By way of comparison, the fetus has a heartbeat at the age of five to six weeks. Babies begin to move at roughly eight weeks. All physiological functions, teeth, eyes, are present at nine weeks. And all vital organs appear at 10 weeks. 
And we know that the baby can feel pain, um, including the excruciating pain associated with an abortion, at 12 weeks. Also, women run into serious health risk uh, in having abortions 15 weeks or later uh, in pregnancy, according to the medical science. So therefore, really by just about any objective measure, uh, Mississippi's law was a reasonable one, uh, reflecting the state's interest in, in both the lives of unborn babies as well as the health uh, of pregnant women. However, uh, the problem that this law had from the very start was that it, it read headlong into Roe versus Wade, really a seemingly insurmountable obstacle. Um, it could not be reconciled with Roe versus Wade, or a case that was later decided in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that affirmed uh, Roe. Um, this legal precedent was really like a brick wall. It just simply could not be cleared, could not be circumvented. In Roe, the U.S. Supreme Court held that the Constitution granted a constitutional right to abortion and that uh, the states could not bar abortion, they could not regulate abortion until the baby is viable. And, and viable means uh, that the baby could live uh, outside the womb. When Roe was decided, this marker was approximately 28 weeks, uh, the beginning of the third trimester of a pregnancy. By the time Casey was decided in 1992, it was 24 weeks. Uh, as of today, there are uh, reports of babies surviving outside the womb at 22, even 21 weeks, uh, much younger than when Roe was decided. But there were no reported incidents of viability at 15 weeks, which is set out in Mississippi's law. Hence the, uh, the dilemma and why uh, the law was almost dead on arrival. So to uphold the law, a federal court would have to get rid of the viability standard or it would have to get rid of Roe and Casey altogether and no federal court could do that. That is, except for uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. And as it turns out, this is exactly what happened. Several weeks ago, on June 24, the Supreme Court rendered an opinion in Dobbs striking down Roe versus Wade. In this momentous decision, authored by Justice Alito, um, the court held that the Constitution does not contain a right to abortion. In fact, the Constitution does not speak to abortion. Uh, one of the justices, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, noted that it's not pro-abortion or anti-abortion. It does not speak to it at all. So it leaves this issue, this important issue, uh, to the states and, and their citizens to decide, they can decide whether abortion is allowed or, or whether it's regulated at all. When the Dobbs decision was handed down, of course there was a lot of press about it, a lot of media about it. And if you happen to catch wind of this news, if you saw uh, a report on it on CBS and then you saw something on Fox News and then you're able to catch something on CNN, you might would think they were talking about three different cases because there's certainly three different expressions of what happened uh, in that case. Um, some were suggesting that the decision outlawed abortion uh, across the land. 
Uh, others implied that the decision went beyond abortion to include contraception uh, and same-sex marriages. But to really know, to really know what the court held, it's always best to go to the direct source, uh, and that's the opinion itself. And, and this is what the court did. In, in Dobbs, and this is, these are several different excerpts from the opinion, uh, the court held that uh, abortion presents a profound moral question. Indeed it is. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what arrogated, but I think that means sidestepped. Um, we now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. Uh, later in the opinion, the court held Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. By the way, as far as like the, the legal analysis of Roe, there's pretty much universal agreement on that point. Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg made this very point that it is really a very poorly analyzed uh, decision. Um, and it really was not something the decision itself uh, aside from the issue of abortion, just the reasoning that the court used was really not becoming uh, of the Supreme Court. And far from bringing about the national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Uh, also in the opinion, it says it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. And then toward the end, the court concluded... Um, to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. So this is what uh, the court said. This is what the court held in Dobbs uh, explaining the what. And, and the next question uh, leads us to where. Uh, particularly, where does Dobbs leave the unborn? It's important to note what Dobbs does not say. Uh, Dobbs does not outlaw abortion. Uh, in fact, Dobbs does not eliminate a single abortion. Dobbs' decision gives space. It, it allows citizens a chance to play a role, to determine the issue. Uh, in lieu of having the issue determined for them. And, and, and know this, the end of Roe uh, does not mark the end of the abortion debate. It's really just the beginning, because what the decision does is it allows for debate. It facilitates debate. It returns the issue back to the people, to the states, the individual states, for them to decide for themselves. So you can have different states taking different positions. In fact, that's what we've seen. Uh, some states um, will ban abortion with some limited exceptions. Uh, other states will not ban abortion, but will have some regulations regarding uh, it. Uh, other states will have no restrictions at all, allowing for abortions all the way up till birth. Uh, the, the diverse approaches are illustrated by this map, uh, this map that able to... Um, update, uh, but, but know that it could be dated by tomorrow because there's a lot of fluctuation uh, with this. A lot of uh, states are considering what to do 
uh, now in the wake of Dobbs. Uh, some were prepared, others not as much. What this map shows, though, is a very diverse approach by various states. Uh, currently, 11 states, including Tennessee, have laws banning abortions in most circumstances, and this is shown by the states in the red. Several other states have legislation aimed at banning or restricting abortions prior to viability, really taking advantage of what, what Dobbs said about Roe and that viability standard. So they're, they're taking a different approach there, and those are the, the states in the yellow. The green represents states that still follow the Roe viability rule, as though Dobbs never happened. And the gray, those are six states that allow for abortion throughout pregnancy, the entire nine months, with no restrictions, and really go beyond that uh, which was held in Roe. When the uh, dust settles, from what I've read, uh, most uh, political watchers believe that, uh, or, and they predict, I've seen a prediction where 25 states, half the country, will ban abortion in most circumstances, and the remaining 25 will uh, continue to allow abortion in most circumstances. We are an evenly divided country when it comes to this issue. So what does this mean for us as Christians? What is our next step? Uh, essentially, um, we need to determine the question of how. How do we move forward with Dobbs? Now that the Supreme Court has ruled, uh, has um, overturned Roe versus Wade, um, is it time for those of us who support uh, the decision uh, and have opposed abortion, do we take a victory lap? Um, do we take a well-deserved rest from this very um, tiring, uh, contentious issue of abortion? The short answer is no, uh, because uh, it's really just getting started um, as far as having an impact uh, in the culture. Uh, we need to be, as with everything else, uh, salt and, and light. Um, as we see from the opinion, Dobbs does not criminalize abortion. It, it returns the issue to the political process. And so, in being salt and light, we should participate in the process. We need to vote and support elected representatives who would support those values, the values of life, and hold them accountable to ensure that they do. Um, this is certainly an ongoing political process. Uh, recently, in the state of Kansas, there was a referendum on abortion in that state. And uh, uh, it was interesting, in a state that is considered very conservative uh, on most issues, uh, they voted to maintain uh, abortion as a protected right. So coming into this political arena, it would seem that those who um, oppose abortion and support um, life, uh, now that we have a voice, uh, we ought to, to use it. Uh, to try to make a difference. But really, I, I would submit to you that, that more important than the political arena is really the impact that we could possibly have on the culture itself. Folks who have been involved in the pro-life movement, um, and I've met several over many over the years, um, 
they will tell you that they're very grateful for Dobbs. They have longed for the day uh, that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. They tirelessly worked. They prayed for that result. Uh, but they would tell you that the end of Roe was never really the, the end goal. Um, the ultimate goal was not to make um, abortion a democratic choice. Um, you would ask, well, does it, is it to make uh, abortion unlawful? Is, is that the goal? Uh, they would tell you, no, not really. Not, uh, that's not ultimately the goal. The end goal really is to be able to communicate in a way uh, that people would come to an understanding that abortion is, is unthinkable that everyone would be convinced um, so that you wouldn't have uh, this tension, that you wouldn't have um, these um, infighting, that people would be, all be of the same mind. So that's really the goal uh, that a lot of us are, are working toward. But something that's absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial really in moving from Dobbs, uh, particularly for the church, is that we need to care for more than unborn babies. We also need to care for born babies. Um, the understanding that more babies will live, more babies need aid. Those families need aid. Uh, you have struggling um, mothers who really need somebody to step up and fill the gap and help them meet their needs. And that, that should be us. That should be us. I don't know who else that could be, but it ought to be us. And that's something, that's a responsibility that we really ought to take seriously. Uh, also, in helping facilitate adoption, uh, making it more convenient, making it a more tenable option uh, for women uh, who find themselves with um, unplanned, unwanted pregnancies. In ancient Rome, um, the civilized, sophisticated authority of the day, they saw nothing wrong with abortion, and for that matter, they saw nothing wrong with um, unwanted babies um, being left to die. Uh, they literally allowed citizens to leave um, babies in a trash heap. And it was the Christians, it was the Christians who sought out these tiny babies, rescued them, raised them uh, as their own. Obviously, that would take a lot of sacrifice. Um, it would take giving of ourselves to do something like that. But we need to be willing to do so again, to take on um, whatever's needed. If that is to um, help with, with diapers, to help with taking care of, of the babies uh, as they're trying to uh, take care of their own children, or adoption to take care of babies who otherwise wouldn't have a home. Um, that would seem to be our calling. Seeing the struggle with abortion is not over, really far from it. Um, we also have to wonder when. When do we? When can we stand down? It's easy to get weary. It's hard to go against the grain of the culture, to go against the beliefs of so many people we know in our social circles, uh, our friends, our family members, after seeing the last of Roe following a fight against it for some 50 years, there's an understandable tendency to just let up. 
But this question is answered by our last. We stop, we rest, we let up when our culture considers abortion unthinkable and we find other options to deal with unwanted pregnancies. Much of the rationale underlying support for abortion seems to be a product of a lot of postmodern thinking that we have in the culture today. It's really this idea that no one can say with any certainty uh, what is right, what is wrong. There's really no universal standards. There's no absolutes. Um, it's really up to the individual to determine what is right, what is wrong in their own eyes. You've heard people say, perhaps, um, well, I personally wouldn't choose to have an abortion, but I, I cannot impose that value on someone else. And I would suggest to you that that could beg a question and should beg a question of, of why, why not? Because typically that's how, how laws work in society. That's how it works with, with murder, uh, that if we um, as a society condemn it, then we are necessarily imposing our values about uh, life on, on others. Our challenge then is to reveal the truth about abortion. Uh, in winsome convincing ways uh, until, alas, abortion is unthinkable. But in this quest to, to make uh, abortion uh, unthinkable, we undoubtedly face challenges. We face conflict. We face confrontation. Lean to the next question, a very difficult question of which. Which response shall we choose? Following Dobbs, the abortion issue will and has already become uh, more contentious. Um, half the country, half the country believes that a fundamental right was stripped away from them. And many of uh, uh, many are taking frustrations, or at least some are taking frustrations, out on Christians, knowing a lot uh, of us oppose abortion. Some groups have gone as far, and these, these are just a handful of groups, uh, and uh, not representative uh, at all, but it is uh, alarming. You have some groups has gone as far as vandalizing churches and vandalizing crisis pregnancy centers um, like this um, graffiti that was found on a uh, site of a crisis pregnancy center in Miami um, with uh, implicit threat there. I've read that since the leak of the Dobbs decision, and then that happened before the Dobbs decision itself, there, there was a infamous leak of it, some 50 crisis pregnancy centers have reported incidents of violence, vandalism, and or intimidation. Uh, really a lot of hostility. I recently read a, a, a story um, about this young lady, his teenager, Grace Harstuck. Uh, she was walking around uh, going door to door in Kansas. That's where they had the referendum law about abortion. And so she was uh, in her way trying to convince people to uh, vote against abortion. Um, but she came across a woman who did not agree with her, but the lady uh, did more than disagree. She berated the teenager. She followed her uh, as she tried to walk away. She cussed at her. Um, and she shoved her, and she hit her, uh, yelling at her, I hope you get raped. I hope you get run over by a car. 
this is, is certainly a, an isolated event, and I, and I don't try to suggest that it's representative of any type of widespread thing. But attacks like this are obviously concerning, and, and I think they're somewhat unprecedented. But even when there's no physicality, um, it is common to run across some hostility, uh, some antagonism, bitterness about this issue. It's a, um, and it's an issue that really people become very passionate about. Uh, there's a growing sentiment among those who um, support abortion that those of us who, who oppose it, the problem with us is not that we have the wrong ideas. It's not just a matter of sitting us down and trying to explain to us why uh, abortion should be a constitutional right. Um, there's a growing sentiment that we just have a wrong view of reality, that um, we need to be censored from society. You see, they don't view us as ignorant as much as evil. Uh, many do not wish to reason with us. They want to marginalize us. So, all right, so how do we deal with that? What do we do in response? How do we respond to such fiery attacks? Uh, do we fight fire with fire? Is that somewhere in Proverbs? Fight fire with fire? Uh, meet aggression head on. Uh, instead of being marginalized, uh, we marginalize them. Now, that's not our calling. Uh, we don't meet fire with fire. What we do is we meet fire with water. Uh, we need to make every effort to quench the anger. And we would do well in this regard to listen. Just listen. Try to understand where the person is coming from, their perspective, while speaking truth. Someone I, I heard, uh, a statement I've heard someone say that I think is very true with this is we should try to win people, not arguments. Being a lawyer, I'm trained and experienced in rhetoric. I can win arguments. I can do that. But I can never convince someone who supports abortion that maybe they ought to reconsider if I make that person feel stupid or I make that person feel ashamed. I can only make headway if I can make that person feel valued, as valuable as the unborn life that I want to save. Interestingly, at this um, pro-life rally shown, shown here, um, that, that Lori and I went to, you had a pro-life rally on one side, and then you had a pro-choice rally right beside it. I mean, directly next to it. And um, you had both people having speeches at the same time, um, speeches from the pro-life side seem to be more optimistic. Uh, speeches from the pro-choice side seem to be more uh, angry, um, upset. 
Uh, and what I detected from it is that those speaking from the pro-choice side were coming from a place of hurt. Um, often people who are passionate about abortion, ardent supporters of it, have been affected by abortion. They've been involved uh, in abortion decision, either themselves or, or involved in some other way. And so it's very real to them. Uh, Lori uh, observed, and I think this was right, it was really, when you had this pro-life and pro-choice right beside each other, it was really the epitome of free speech because everyone had their, their say. Each side uh, was able to speak whatever they wanted to say about abortion, and it was in this symbolic venue right in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. But something was missing. Despite the close proximity, despite really hearing everything the other side had to say about the issue. No one was really listening or making any attempt to understand the other. We must meet people, people who hate what we stand for, with love, understanding, compassion, and a whole lot of patience. Yeah, that's easy to say. That's easy for me to say. Uh, I have a hard time having patience with a dry cleaners when I have a shirt missing. Much less interacting with someone who does not like me, does not like what I stand for, and makes no attempt to hide it. But that's what we're called to do. When we condemn abortion, we have to understand that those who have already made that choice can feel condemned, rejected. We have to communicate in a way that acknowledges pain, conveys humility, and expresses a universal need of mercy for all of us, for all of us. And, of course, no dialogue would be complete without sharing where we find that mercy in Jesus Christ. I believe uh, an effective way to communicate what, what I found is effective in communicating with someone, particularly on this extremely sensitive issue, is to ask questions, much like what I'm trying to do with this talk tonight, is to ask questions. Because when we ask questions, we're showing that we're interested, that we care in what they think about it. We can ask, why do you support abortion? Why do you believe that a woman ought to have a choice? And then when we do, we should listen. Really listen. Not think of what our counterpoint is, but listen. And try to appreciate what they're saying and then respond with empathy, understanding, as well as reason, logic, and truth. Our knowledge about the truth of abortion, and we're advantaged in this way because we have the privy of Scripture. What it is, what it does, it's really not enough to win someone over. We need to care. We need to care. 
We need to extend grace, the same grace that has been extended to us. That brings my comments to a close. Um, But please allow me to introduce to you uh, Peter Winterburn, my friend Peter, who is an elder here at IPC. Peter, if you would, please uh, come up. Peter is the uh, former uh, chair of uh, Life Choices, uh, which does wonderful. If you're not already familiar with Life Choices, uh, you should be. It does wonderful work um, providing a really a unique array of services, uh, medical services, ultrasounds, counseling, as well as facilitating uh, adoptions. And uh, following Dobbs, the work of Life Choices and similar Christian ministries, uh, the need for them uh, is really um, more now uh, than ever. So, Peter, uh, please tell us about the ministry of Life Choices and, and what that looks like post road Thank you, Nate. This volume okay? Ben will, ben will fix that if it's not. Um, yeah, thank you, Nate, for that presentation. Um, really excellent. And uh, Nate and I have known each other for a long time through Life Choices, particularly. Um, I was on the board there for nine years. I just rotated off the board, but um, in June, right when this decision came out, I'm no longer a part of the ministry formally, although I'm still involved. Um, But Life Choices is a pregnancy medical clinic here in Memphis. We have two locations, one in Raleigh and one on Poplar, right next to the Planned Parenthood um, on Poplar. And um, one of the things that I do when I speak about Life Choices, I try to do every time I speak about Life Choices, is talk about a couple of the offerings that we have. Particularly one of them is our HOPE ministry, and HOPE stands for helping others with past abortion experience. Because in a room this size, there are people that have had abortion in their past. And I'm so glad that Nate touched on what he did in speaking about this because um, I have found in my own experience as a believer, as a pro-life Christian, that in some circles there's often a tendency to yell and scream and condemn um, pro-choice people or uh, people that have had abortions. And there's a real missed opportunity to uh, care and show love to people uh, that might disagree with us on these thoughts and that might have abortion in their past and need help and healing and maybe don't realize that there's healing in Jesus Christ and there can be forgiveness and there can be healing from a past abortion. And so that's one of the things that Life Choices does. Um, But uh, we offer free ultrasounds, uh, free pregnancy testing, free STD treatment. If there is an STD, we have a medical director. We work under his license. Dr. Tom Gray is an OBGYN here in Memphis, and he's our medical director, and he reviews all the ultrasounds. Um, So we do limited obstetric ultrasound that are all free of charge, because um, everything that we receive funding-wise is private donations. Um, So we offer that, uh, and now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, um, there's a big question about how do PMCs like Life Choices shift, what do we do differently, if anything, and how do we operate differently, if at all. 
And uh, that's one of the things that our board and, and our staff are talking about right now. But um, I'm just going to plug this really quick for anybody who might be interested. We have in six weeks, we have an annual fundraising banquet every year at Bellevue Baptist. And it's six weeks from tomorrow. So if anybody is interested in attending that banquet and hearing about what Life Choices is doing in this community, please come see me. Um, I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Um, but I'll just give you a brief snippet. Uh, Life Choices has talked for quite some time about expanding some of our services and perhaps even um, expanding one of our facilities or building an entirely new facility. And a lot of us think that now that Roe versus Wade is over, has been overturned, um, we're going to need more space. And for instance, we have a um, a section of our ministry is uh, the baby prep program, and we have basically a couple of closets in these facilities where we have baby supplies, we have um, diapers, we have bottles, we have blankets, we have things that are donated, things that people bring to us. We're going to probably need to expand those sections of our ministry by tenfold, perhaps, now that this decision has come out. If more babies are born, if less abortions occur, um, which is still something that actually, in my opinion, remains to be seen. As Nate said, Roe versus Wade being overturned doesn't automatically mean there are less abortions. It means that every state now gets to decide what their abortion laws are going to be. Will people be allowed to travel state to state to find the state that suits their abortion preference and have an abortion if they want one? Will just as many abortions take place? I don't know. I don't know. So um, just because Roe versus Wade is overturned doesn't mean the victory is won. It's like Nate said. Um, it's kind of just like every state now gets to decide. So, um, so there's a lot going on. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about the opinion and everything else, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about, about that. But I, I will just say one thing that's interesting to me is that in 1973, when Roe versus Wade was decided... There were 30 states that outlawed abortion at that time. So immediately with the decision, 30 states' deliberative processes and all that stuff just came to an end. It was imposed upon the whole nation. 50 years later, when people say, oh, we've had this reliance interest on Roe versus Wade and the ability to have an abortion, it's a fundamental right in the Constitution. Well, Dobbs said, no, it's not. That was bad law. That was a bad decision from the start. There's no fundamental right to an abortion in the Constitution. Um, and immediately after 50 years, there were 22 states that still had a trigger law on the books that 30 days after Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion's illegal. So after 50 years of debate, nothing has changed in this nation. It's... It, uh, the, the, the moral issue of abortion has remained with us because it is a moral issue. Uh, so I just find that interesting that now here we are in sort of a brand new world. I'm 43 years old. Roe versus Wade has been on the books my entire life until now. Um, now it's not. And so now every state will get to decide what they will do. And I think we may have some states that uh, obviously allow it and some that don't. Um, will it further divide our nation? Will it further polarize 
the people that are already uh, up in arms against each other on this issue and move to the state you want to, move away from the state you don't like their preference? I don't know. We'll see what happens. But as Christians and as folks that work in the pro-life um, space, I really appreciate what Nate said. We need compassion. We need to listen. We need to understand uh, folks that disagree with us. And we need to be, um, we need to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, love, joy, peace. I mean, we need that in our culture now more than ever. And on this issue, we need that with our friends and neighbors. So um, I'm happy to talk with anyone or answer any questions afterwards. Uh, thank you, Nate, for the wonderful presentation. And if anyone has questions, we'd be happy to talk. So usually at uh, things like this, uh, our pastor, Sean Lucas, who is a, an avid runner, will run from one end of the hall to the other with a microphone for those who have questions. I want to put the rumors to bed. I am not a runner. Okay? So uh, Stephen Felker is going to help me. Stephen's in the back corner back there with a microphone. I've got a microphone over here. So I'm going to handle this side of the room. Stephen's going to handle this side of the room. If you've got a question... For either Nate or Peter, if you'll raise your hand, we'll bring the microphone to you. Please let us know which one you want to ask your question to, and, and they'll answer it. George? We've had a lot of people in our church uh, <clears throat> that have gone through the adoption process. It takes years and years. Uh, it costs, I've heard, upwards of $100,000 in some cases. A lot of people have to travel way out of state to do it. Uh, do you see any movement uh, within the legislature or other bodies that will make the adoption process quicker, more efficient, and less costly? Because to me, that, that's how, if we're going to have these children born, the people that are willing to adopt, and we need to make it where they can afford to do it. Yeah, I agree with that, George. It should be easier. Uh, we should be able to match up um, people who are really wanting babies with those babies. Uh, Peter, are you hearing anything about any movement on that? Not specifically yet. I think it's still too early, you know, to see legislation on that at this point. I did, I failed to mention, so Life Choices is unique in that we are also a licensed adoption agency in Tennessee and in Mississippi. So uh, we're kind of a unique PMC in that way and that we we do offer those services as well, but it's a great point, George, and I think, um, again, depending on what the, how the trends play out and um, if there is a, a pretty severe reduction in the abortion rate and more babies are being born because of this Dobbs decision, I could definitely see legislatures kind of jumping into action and, and addressing that more uh, on a more emergent basis, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and Life Choices really is ahead of the curve with that. It's a pretty unique setup. Uh, that how, how long have you guys been in adoption? I don't know. I think it's been at least about yeah. 20 years, though. And, and that's just amazing because at the time, no one was yeah. doing that. No yeah. one was doing that. But it's, it's such a natural thing to, to combine. Of course, now it's, it's even uh, much more uh, comparable. And it really is something that... Um, it seems like all crisis pregnancy centers ought to consider doing. 
Any, any other questions? Yes, Hollis. Can, can the Supreme Court go back and re rethink this again? Is that, is that, did they come back and when, when the Supreme Court's different? Regrettably, that's, that's exactly right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't seem to be true. That was one of the things that really opened my eyes when I went to law school. I really thought that uh, the, uh, the law, the Constitution, it would be based on how it reads. Uh, but, but often it's based on the reader. Uh, and so, no, it, it could change. If you have five justices who feel differently. In theory, yes, that, that is possible. Um, yeah, one, one, of the, one of the profound things about the Dobbs opinion, in, in my opinion, uh, and it's actually a very readable opinion, I would encourage anyone to pick it up and read it. It's not very long. If you read all the dissents and all the concurrences, it's longer. But if you just read the opinion, um, one, of the, one of the things um, that Alito said was uh, really that Roe versus Wade was wrong from the start and that the right to an abortion is not something that's um, f deeply, uh, deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history. And that's the basis for really finding a fundamental right that's not specifically enumerated in the Constitution under the 14th Amendment, which is what happened in the Roe versus decision. So Alito pretty much went through all the history and said Roe didn't follow precedent. It didn't follow this principle of stare decisis and pointed out why that was the case and said it was wrongly decided from the start. And even Ginsburg had, had been quoted as saying it was poorly reasoned. So Alito and these six justices kind of set it, set it right and said, here's what the Constitution says and here's what it doesn't. Now the states feel free to, to do it. But yes, in theory, a, another iteration of the Supreme Court could come back and, and overturn it, in theory. Maybe one or two more questions, Fred. as far as enforcement of the restrictions? Oh, those old people. Uh, as far as enforcement of the restrictions on this in terms of going forward, I know I had read a few things where DAs have said they weren't going to prosecute in, these, in a lot of cases. And I, I know it's too early to see that, but I don't know whether you've seen or read anything about that. No, it's, I guess that's yet to be seen. Fred, uh, yeah, Fred's question is, well, how, how's this, will these, if you have laws in place, will they be enforced? And I think it probably depends very much on, on the state, and, uh, and then it could depend on who the prosecutor is and, uh, and whether or not state's getting involved as far as uh, the, those prosecutions. So it, it, it could be very political with that, Fred, as it can, can be actually with a lot of different uh, type of crimes. But I, I think particularly with that one, I, I think you'll see um, very inconsistent um, enforcement across the country. I got one. Uh, the states that do allow abortions, can they force the medical field to participate? Oh, there's legislation. Uh, yeah, sure. The, the question dealt with um, a very important question. And that is uh, that there are states, and there's plenty of them, that will continue to um, 
allow support, allow abortion, and really support abortion, where they allow abortion through all nine months, and there there is legislation that's being considered where uh, their citizens could be required to pay for those abortions, and and also uh, uh, forcing um, uh, medical personnel to uh, participate in those abortions. Uh, my understanding, I, th I think it's in, in the state of New York where there is similar, there is legislation that's being considered for that. And, and you see that in different uh, situations where um, like pharmacists could be uh, required to um, prescribe uh, abortion pills. And so those are things that are being played out now. I, I believe that if that's the case, that's, that's unconstitutional. That, that a, a medical professional could not be uh, required uh, to do something that is against her conscience. So, so I think there, there could be some laws, but I, I really think they're very constitutionally dubious if, if they are passed. I think Charles has got a question, so we'll, we'll end with Charles. Okay. Uh, and then uh, they've both said they'll be available afterwards. So if you've got further questions, uh, feel free to come up and, and ask them. Charles, go ahead. So if I'm remembering correctly, I think Shelby County has approximately 3,000 abortions a year. Are we expecting a short-term significant change to those numbers? Or, or are we expecting specifically in Memphis there to be 1,500 babies that are unwanted in Memphis? I would sure hope that there would be a decrease in, in Shelby County. Peter, can you, can you speak to that? Or? Yeah, Charles, that's a great question. And these are kind of questions that, like, our board is asking ourselves right now. Like, we don't know. We don't know what this is going to look like. I mean, in theory, you would say, okay, well, there were 3,000 abortions in Shelby County. All of a sudden, uh, the trigger bill goes into effect. Abortions are not going to be legal. Uh, so there's going to be all these unwanted babies. Or all the women that were going to get abortions anyway are going to travel to the nearest destination and get one somewhere else. I mean, we just don't know how that's all going to play out. I mean, um, we're trying to prepare as a ministry for that uh, possibility that there are going to be, you know, babies that need care. There are going to be mothers that need additional care, et cetera. Um, and kind of like beef up our baby prep program, beef up a lot of the portions of our ministry that have been smaller. Maybe it's going to be a bigger percentage. We don't know. So we're thinking through those things, but it's a great question. And hopefully, obviously, hopefully there are more babies born, but that also provides an opportunity for the church to say, okay, you know, we're, we're pro-life people and this, this terrible, you know, decision was just overturned. Um, now how do we step in and care for these moms and care for these babies that need our assistance? I think that's a great question for the church to be asking. Okay, will you join me in thanking uh, both Nate and Peter for being here with us tonight?